All right, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12? The passage for today's sermon is also in your bulletin. It's on page 263 of the blue Bibles that are there in front of you, although I would suggest perhaps your bulletins would be easiest this morning uh, because I will make reference to several things uh, that are in uh, the bulletin or spread throughout the bulletin this morning. Okay. Uh, If you haven't been with us, or if you have, then by way of reminder, you will recall that we are in a rather dreadful portion of this book of 2 Samuel. Chapter 11 uh, told us of David's great sin against Uriah and against Bathsheba. And chapter 12 then told us of how that sin was uncovered, it was revealed by the prophet Nathan to David. And you recall that as Nathan reveals this, he begins this by telling a story. And the story allows David to enter into uh, the situation, to become offended by it, and then to realize, of course, that he is the man about whom the story is being told. This leads to David's heartfelt confession. And this heartfelt confession of David's is in a very concise form as we find it here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, right? It's just a couple of words where David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then as we saw a couple of weeks ago, this is of course poetically expanded for us in Psalm 51 with a description of that in more specific terms, in more reflective terms. This then is followed by a pronouncement of pardon from the Lord, the pardon of the Lord pronounced upon David by Nathan the prophet. In these words, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Now those are great and glorious words that we rejoiced in together two weeks ago. The Lord has put away your sin. And recognizing that, and recognizing that that is the foundation, there is yet more that we need to dig into in this passage. And I mentioned this two weeks ago, that we would come to it, and as it turns out, we come to it now today. We've got to look at the pain that continues on. We have to turn to it today and consider the fallout, the consequences for David's great sin. I'm going to pick up our reading at verse 9, which takes us back into the middle of what Nathan is saying to David. We read it two weeks ago, but it at least uh, reminds us of those things and brings us then on up through uh, the rest of the chapter to at least verse 25 that I will read for us here this morning then, the living word of our living God. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it in secret, or you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead, he may do himself some harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Great God in heaven, we need your help. As we come to your word in all of its truth, we find ourselves often slain before your word, cut open and exposed. And we pray that you would do that today to us, but only in a way that heals, only in a way that is for our good. Help us to hear the word appropriately today, Lord. Help me, your servant, to communicate it clearly as I ought to. Lord, be with us by the power of your Spirit. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to begin today by considering the ancient wisdom of Job in verses that are on the front of your bulletin and that are familiar to many of us, familiar culturally and familiar to those who love the Lord as well. After the loss of his wealth and of his children, 
we read this in Job chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Chapter 2 continues the story of Job. When Job's body itself is decimated, and you will recall that his wife instructs him to curse God and die. To which Job replies, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil. Now I'm calling the sermon today Disciplined Severely, and I'm taking that title from a verse that I quoted for us two weeks ago and was in our call to worship this morning. It's on page three, and in particular from verses 17 through 18 of Psalm 118. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Okay, this is, remember, this, hear this in the context of Nathan saying to David, you shall not die. You shall not die. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. In our text today, we are confronted by, we, we are witnessing this severe discipline of the Lord. It is painful. It is miserable. It is gut-wrenching. It is heart-breaking. But we are also witnessing something else. We see that this severe discipline of the Lord, and we'll see this as we work through the text, this severe discipline of the Lord could also be called a severe mercy. A severe discipline and a severe mercy turn out to be very similar ideas scripturally and in our lives as well. Now that phrase, a severe mercy, is a phrase from C.S. Lewis. Uh, many of you know it as the title of a book by Sheldon Van Alken, uh, a book that traces his relationship and his coming to faith with his wife and then the loss of his wife and his interaction during that period with Lewis in which Lewis uses this phrase to describe the loss of his wife saying, you have experienced a severe mercy from the Lord. Today, what I'd like to do is I want to structure our sermon, and this will become clear as we work through it. I want to structure our sermon around the word misery today. Job experienced the misery of this life. Sheldon Van Alken experienced the misery that is part of this world. David experiences the misery of this world. They, we, become 
the miserables, les miserables in this world. Here's our structure as we look at it. We're just going to do this very simply. We're going to look at misery, then we're going to look at grieving misery, and then we're going to look at misery's mercy. Okay, so misery, grieving misery, and then misery's mercy. So we begin with the misery. In this chapter, there is much misery. The declaration of the sword not departing and the implosion of David's family. That's going to play out in the chapters to come. But the focal point of the misery in this chapter at this time in what is before us today is the death of this child. A sword piercing through the soul of David and certainly piercing through Bathsheba's soul as well. The pain and the anguish is indescribable. Surely this is some of the darkest moments of their lives. For Bathsheba, her life has been torn apart, ripped apart by the sin of David. And now this child will die. For David, he sees that he's the one responsible for it. He's confronted by the reality that it's because of his sin that this child is going to die. Now many of us in this room have known the misery of losing a child or children to miscarriages that took place in our lives. Some perhaps have known the pain of losing a child in infancy or at a very young age. And I suspect that all of us, if that didn't happen to us, have known people who have lost children. Misery abounds in our world. We see it in scripture. We see it in our own lives and we see it even sometimes as I've prayed already in, in the announcement, we see it sometimes played out on the grand stage of the world and put before us in the colossal destruction and loss of life in Syria and in Turkey this week. And you can't help but lament. You can't help but cry out. But we also can't help lamenting and crying out and kind of screaming into the lament or screaming with the lament. Why? How long, O oh Lord? Where were you? Where were you when these things were taking place? Why did this child have to die and not David himself? Why? Couldn't it have been another way? Couldn't you have protected the life of this child? This child didn't commit it. Why? Why? Job's children and not Job himself. At least with David, we can point to a sin. Why? Job's children. Why a children's volleyball team in Turkey? Why the parents of a child lost while the child is born out of the rubble? Were, were they worse sinners? than other people? Is that why? Were they, were they somehow worse than other people? 
Who's responsible for it? Whose sin? Whose sin is the cause of this devastation? You remember those questions? Right? Those questions come up in the New Testament. Jesus processes with the people who are around him those very questions. Now let me repeat something that we confessed earlier and that is important and foundational for us. Question 17 of the Shorter Catechism, into what a state did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Not just a little bit of sin and misery coming into the world, but into an estate of sin and misery. Now, if you will, looking at last week, we considered the sin itself. This week, we're looking at the misery, and so the question is, what is the misery of that estate wherein two man fell? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life. To all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Misery. If you want to put that in scriptural terms, it's, it's this, for the wages of sin is death, that's it. That's, that's the story that is here. The wages of sin is death. There's cause and effect that takes place. Sin takes place in the world, and the wages of it is death. And if you want to understand what misery is, just take the word death and expand the word death. All the miseries of this life can be subsumed under that word. Death. The two are inseparable. Sin has consequences, miserable consequences. Sin, even forgiving sin, can have miserable consequences. Sin often has consequences not only for the one who is committing the sin, but for those against whom the sin was committed and those who were connected to. The victim of the sin and the perpetrator of the sin. Now there's a lot here. Let me try to address this. I'm going I'm to use an alliteration here of four C's. And let me try to address some of these uh, ideas that are here. First of all, sin has consequences. That's what I've just said. Consequences. From the very first sin onward, this is true. You reap what you sow is perhaps a simple way to state it. Sin has consequences, and we see it, right, in the very first sin. We're not going to turn back to it right now. But we see what takes place there, the shame, the fear, the hiding, the blaming, the expulsion, the loss of fellowship, the death, and the murder that follows from it. And all of that continues to be true. Sin has consequences. I mean, we could, we could turn to a thousand places in Scripture to see that this is true. We could turn to our own lives and see that this is true, but let me just give us one example so that this is as tangible as it can be and I think related to the text that we're looking at today. Think of the sin of adultery. Think of the sin of adultery, and let's say a husband commits the sin of adultery. It may be, it may be, that the wife is able to forgive the husband of that awful sin of adultery. But you can rest assured 
that there are going to be consequences that come from this because you can't break the intimacy of that covenantal bond without there being consequences. And in fact, it might even be that though she can forgive the husband, the marriage itself cannot be restored. And a divorce takes place from that, and you can rest assured that the consequences, the impact of this will be felt not only by the husband, not only by the wife, but for generations to come from it as well. Sin has consequences. Sin, and this will be your second C, often has collateral consequences. Collateral consequences. We are more connected than we realize. Sin is not merely individualistic, but it impacts the community as well, sometimes more, sometimes less visibly. Perhaps one of the clearest examples, right, is in Scripture uh, with Achan in Joshua and Achan's sin and how that impacts the community of Israel. And we can see this in general with respect to sin, that it has collateral consequences, but I want us to understand it in a very particular way. It's particularly true for those who have been assigned by God the position of being covenant mediators. Sorry, I don't mean for that to be overly technical. But we've talked about God's covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. And there are certain men throughout history who have been these covenantal mediators. Think of Noah, of Abraham, of Moses, David, Jesus, etc. And you can see this particularly in them. Think in the first place of Adam. Adam's sin does not only impact Adam and Eve, but it impacts all of humanity. All of humanity. David's sin does not only impact David and Bathsheba and Uriah and this child, but it impacts all of Israel. Now the reality is those consequences, those collateral consequences, start close at home. In the the immediate family, it starts right there, but especially for a covenantal representative like these men were, it goes out from them to the people of God with whom they are connected as well. All of Israel is going to suffer because of this sin by David. Third, sin has consequences that are correlated. Correlated. Sin has consequences that correspond to the sin itself. But be extremely careful here. Sometimes the correlation is clear and it's direct, and you can point to this is the sin, this is the punishment that takes place, this is the result of that sin. Think, for example, of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law has sin that is described, breaking of the law that takes place, and then punishment that is ascribed and prescribed for the breaking of that particular commandment. One to one, you break this, this is the punishment for that sin. And this text is also very clear. Right? There's no ambiguity in our text. There's no wondering, why did this child die? Is there some other reason? This child died because of David's sin. Or if you want some other biblical examples without turning to them, uh, think of Ananias and Sapphira right? and in, in the book of Acts. Think of Herod in the book of Acts. Sometimes we see this correlation, and it is that plain force, it is that direct. But much of the time, even most of the time, the correlation isn't clear, or it isn't one-to-one. 
That's the case with Job, right? The, the, the counselors of Job take this principle, this idea of there's a correlation between sin and consequences. Ergo, what is the sin that is causing these consequences in your life? And they've gone down the wrong path. They've, they've run down the wrong path because they're assuming a one-to-one. -one. They're assuming they can identify this one and then attach it over here. That's not the case with Job. With David, it is here, but that's not the case with Job. And so you have to be extremely careful. This is the same idea. When the disciples see the man who is born blind and they say to Jesus, Jesus, what's the cause of the blindness? Is the cause of the blindness the sin of this man's parents or is the cause of the blindness this man's sin? Which one? And Jesus says, no, 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 neither. You're searching out a one-to-one. -one. You've got an idea. There's a correlation here, but that's not it. It's that the works of God might be demonstrated. Which calls all of us to a great deal of humility here before the Lord when we're confronted by our suffering or by someone else's suffering and loss. 99.99 times out of 100, we don't know. We don't know what the direct reason is for something. And that calls us to great trust. It calls us to humility, and it calls us to trust the Lord, to say, I don't know. I don't know why this child. I mean, I know the correlation exists, but I don't know why the child had to die. I don't know why we had to have miscarriages between Danny and Nate. I don't know why all of this destruction and devastation has taken place in Turkey. I know that ultimately, there's a, a correlation. All of the misery in this life flows out of the sin of our first parents. But I don't know the specifics of this thing. It calls us to humility in the face of those things and to trust the God who knows. Who knows? who's got it all, and when all is done, and when all is revealed, there will be no injustice with God. No one will accuse him of injustice. In fact, David is at pains to make this clear. Psalm 51, he says this, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Blameless. David throws that out over top of all that's taking place here. God is blameless in his judgment. Paul hears that, picks that up, brings that into Romans chapter 3, and says there's a blamelessness to the judgment of God because of the reality that he knows all. He knows all. And if we brought Galatians into this, he has imprisoned, he has shut up all mankind under sin so that nobody can say there's injustice with God. You're unfair. You're wrong in the way that you have gone about this thing. God knows. God knows. I don't know if this is true in your life. It's true in mine. There are people whom I love, who I've lost in this world, and I don't know their faith. I just don't know it. God knows. It's not a mystery to him. It's not unclear to him. There's correlation but be careful. The fourth C is that as much misery as there is in this world and as much sin as there is in this world, God in his patience and in his mercy 
is curtailing the consequences, constraining the consequences, containing the damage that goes out into this world. God is restraining his anger and he has been doing it since the very first fall because if he wasn't restraining his anger, we would not be here. That would be it. But he is restraining his anger in his patience and in his mercy for the sake of the redemption of his people. God distributes far more mercy into this world than we deserve that we might turn to him. He pours out mercy into this world when what we deserve is only judgment and wrath and anger, but that's not all that we have in this world. The reality in this world for both the saved and for the unsaved is that we live. We have life, we have breath, we have bodies, we have some level of health. We also, in addition to that, have some level of joy. Joy that exists in the world, in the hearts, even of the people who are unsaved. God has put mercy into the world that in the midst of the world, considering the power, the wrath of God, his eternal power and might, and their own judgment against it, they see his mercy and there's a message in it. There's a message in it. There's a testimony out there of the fact that they've offended God, but of the reality that God hasn't yet brought against them his full wrath. Misery. There's misery in this world, but let's, let's move from the misery to grieving the misery. Now, our passage here doesn't tell us everything about grieving. Uh, please understand that. But there are lessons for us here. Grieving takes many forms. First of all, though, what we can see in our passage is that grieving the misery is affirmed. Grieving the misery is affirmed. David knows the sovereign declaration of God. David knows the reason that everything is taking place, but that doesn't stop David from pouring out the pain before God, pouring out the grief, pouring out the anguish of his soul. In other words, he didn't make this equation like this. He didn't say, well, this is what God has decreed. This is what God has designed. Far be it for me to be upset about it. I'll just accept it and move on to the next thing. David allows himself to be grieved at a misery of which he is the cause and of which there is no doubt, there is no mystery about what is taking place here. Who knows? Perhaps it's in these days, right? Perhaps it's during this time of mourning when his face is to the ground. Perhaps it's during these days where he composes in his head Psalm 51, where he has to work through all of these things, realizing his own sin, realizing, no, it's, it's me, Lord. It's me. I was conceived in iniquity. Or maybe Psalm 32, or maybe some of the other psalms of lament are composed in the midst of this time. This is the broken heart of David that we see here. And it is the difference, we'll just point this out again, it is the difference between David and Saul. This is the man after God's own heart, who has this kind of an approach to God, to life, to his own sin. Second, we see David's grief leads him to fasting and to prayer. Prayer 
for the life of the child. Prayer for his heart's desire. Does it disturb you? To, to know that God made a decree about this child. God communicated the decree to David about what was going to take place. And David prayed the opposite of what God had revealed in his will. David prayed his heart's desire. His heart's desire for the life of this child, even though he knew what God had said through Nathan. Nevertheless, what David knows is David knows the character of God. David knows that the Lord is gracious and compassionate and full of kind compassion. All of those things that we sang from Psalm 103, which was our, again our opening hymn this morning. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. David knew that. David knows this character of this God. And David also knows his biblical history. Because this has happened before. When God has declared that he was going to judge and destroy the people, Moses stepped in and God said, leave me alone. Moses said, I can't leave you alone. Can't leave you alone with that declaration hanging out there. And Moses, the covenant mediator, intercedes for the sake of the people of God and basically pleads the graciousness of God, pleads the mercy of God. David understands the graciousness of God, the character of God, the covenant of God. And so David joins. He joins with Moses who intercedes on behalf of the people, delivering the people, although there will be a judgment consequences that come from that sin, to be sure, harsh. He joins with Abraham, who hears the declaration, I'm going to wipe out, I'm wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, we need to talk. We need to talk. I need to pray. I, I, I need you to hear me in this. David intercedes. And we can and we should do that as well. We pray the desires of our heart and then ultimately we pray that the Lord's will would be done. Third in grief here, David rose, washed, changed, worshipped, and ate. Now we've got to be careful here. The point here isn't that David, on a dime, turned from grieving to being fine. The point is this, David carried on. David carried on. Grief doesn't just go away. It doesn't just turn off like a switch. Grief doesn't just go away, but it doesn't need to be the dominant note, the dominant theme or melody of our lives. Grief and misery are real. And sometimes they hurt like hell. But for the believer, there's a trumpet sound. There's a clarion call that trumps the misery so that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We move back towards life. And that's what David is doing here. David is saying that the 
people of God can grieve, grieve well, grieve deeply, grieve sincerely, grieve truly, pray for the relief. And then the people of God, having grieved, can move back towards life. We move towards the worship of this sovereign Lord whom we know and love and trust even when we can't understand every aspect of what has taken place. We move towards worship. We come here. We come to this place. I have said this before as your pastor, and I'm sure it's as true for you as it is for me as well. There are times when I don't want to be here, when I'd rather be someplace else, when I'd rather hide. There are times when I've stood in this pulpit after the death of one of the people most close to me in this world, 15 minutes after I heard of the death, and I can't sing because my voice is locked up. But you can sing, and I can listen to you sing the doxology and be around the people of God and sing the worship of God or at least hear the worship and the praise of God that exists. We come here, we come here when we don't want to come here and we pour it out. And we pour out our souls, we come back to life. All right, I, I know there's a lot in this. We move from misery to grieving the misery to misery's mercy. In the beginning of the sermon, we quoted the phrase, the Lord has disciplined me severely. And in that Hebrews reading uh, that Blake read for us, we've got you know, any number of great verses, but perhaps the two that are most familiar. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. There's a yield there's a harvest that comes with discipline, with the severe mercy of the Lord. And it comes in two ways. One, when we're disciplined by the Lord, there's pain that's associated there. And in the pain and in the discipline, we learn to fear the Lord in its most good and good and gracious and wonderful way to fear the Lord. But we also learn, and this is what the writers are compelled to show us, that it's because of love. That it's out of love, that it's out of mercy that this is taking place. That God has a yield that is coming from it. And so what happens when you get those two things together, when you get the Lord and I should fear the Lord, and when you get the Lord is love and the mercy of the Lord is poured out upon me, then you can strengthen the drooping hands and you can strengthen the weak knees and you can strive after that. Strive for the peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The mercy in this passage, behold it, three ways. You know, I'll, I'll try to do them quickly, but not too quickly. <laughs> um, the last one I didn't even read for us. This passage, and I'm not going to uh, read it for us now. This ends, and I didn't read these final verses, 26 onward. Remember, this passage started with a war against the Ammonites. Uh, and that started back in chapter 10. In chapter 12, that war ends with a victory. Go figure, David gets another victory out of this. The people of God are relieved from the oppression of their enemies after all of this. That's a mercy, that's an extraordinary mercy that is in our chapter, though not in the text that we're looking at specifically. But what we've read and what we've been focusing on, there are two more smaller and wonderful mercies that are uncovered here, and the first is in verse 23. I shall not go to him... I shall, 
I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. What's David saying? Some might say that David is simply making the statement that he'll join with him in the grave, that he'll be with his lost son in the grave, but that's not it. That would simply be more misery. No one in the Old Testament looked at the grave as kind of a consolation and said, well, that's great. My body will lay in the dust dead next to my dead child. There's no consolation in that. And consolation is clear in the passage. David is encouraged in the passage. David has a different end in mind than laying buried next to his son. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember, David. David is the 2 Samuel 7 man. David is the man who is steeped in, who is bedecked in, who is clothed in forever promises. Forever promises. David, a son of yours, is going to reign on your throne forever and his kingdom will be forever. David knows about forever. It's a small form. It's a budding form of understanding forever. But he knows about forever. And so, knowing the character of God, knowing the covenant of God, he expresses a careful covenantal hope that he will join this child not in death, but in life everlasting. We have hope for the children of believers who have died. Whether they have died in the womb or whether they have died in infancy. And I don't want you to hear this just from me. Turn to page 8 of your bulletins. I want you to hear this from the Westminster Confession first of all. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. By those, in other words, who have such severe uh, mental handicaps and abilities that they can't hear and process and make sense of the Word. John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb when he heard the sound of the greeting. When he knew, how did he know? By the presence of the Spirit of God at work in that baby inside of that womb to know those things. And then from Dort, from the canons of Dort, which is not one of our confessions, but it's one of the three forms of unity, confessions that are used by Reformed churches all around the world. Since we must make judgments about God's will from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they, together with their parents, are included. That's from 1 Corinthians. Godly parents ought not doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. But perhaps the most stunning revelation of the mercy in the midst of this discipline is in the birth of another son who has two names. 
Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. I, I love this son. And Solomon. Solomon, whose name is kind of the same as the city over which he will be king. Jerusalem. Shalom. Peace. Wholeness. Completeness. Leave it to God to bring a beloved son, a prince of peace, out of this mess, out of this destruction, out of all brokenness that is this passage that we've been in now for several weeks, one week longer because of providence and me not being here last week. Leave it to God. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away is not the full biblical story. It was not even the full story for Job. Job said that in Job chapter 1. If we had said, Job, can you modify that very first statement that you made, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, come to Job chapter 40, the end, or whatever it is, 42, the end of Job. Can you modify that statement? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, and the Lord giveth far more abundantly than all that we can ask and imagine. That's the way the biblical story ends. Because the biblical story is ultimately not a tragedy, but a comedy. It ends in glory. You see where this goes, right? I mean... I, I'll point it out to us again, but I want you to know where it's going. Your New Testament begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Then it traces the genealogy, and you get to verse 6, and it says this, And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and etc., and etc. Bathsheba and David and Solomon are part of the generations of Jesus Christ. To us, a son is given. To us, a son is given. The beloved son, the prince of peace, is not just given to David and Bathsheba, but it echoes, it anticipates a greater son, a more loved son, if that's possible, a more loved son, a greater prince who will be the prince of peace. He was given. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He was taken away. Taken away not because they were more powerful than him, but because he gave his life to them. He gave himself to them according to his will. He who possessed all of the authority gave his life up and allowed himself to be taken away according to the will of the Father. He was taken away. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was taken away and he was given back. He was given back in the resurrection of the dead. And how do you want to say it? We shall go to him or he shall come to us, say it however you like. 
the punishment, the chastisement, the discipline, the severe discipline that brought us peace, that brought us shalom, that brought us back together again, was upon him. And by his wounds, yea, by his death, we are healed. Out of misery, his misery, comes our life in him. He bore in his body, in his soul, on the tree, all of our sins and all of the attendant miseries. He bore them all, all of the sin and all of the miseries that we might live. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would help us to, in these words, grieve where we need to grieve, beseech you where we need to beseech you, confess where we need to confess, find our hope where we need to have our hope strengthened and built up in you, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Strengthen us, Lord, and help us to lift up these drooping hands, strengthen the weak knees, and to strive together after you. In your name we pray. Amen.